0: Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast, a podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. I'm talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. My name is Andrew Sill, coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. Lockdown Melbourne. Not much fun at the moment. Well, joining us today, we're talking aerobatics again, but this time we're talking pattern aerobatics. Uh, Russell Edwards will be joining me later to uh, talk about his life in aeromodelling and. Uh, his involvement with uh and flying and and beyond as well. So a good chat with Russell coming up. Before we get to that, don't forget to subscribe to the Flat Out RC podcast whilst you're uh, on the platform so you don't miss out on anything. Every Wednesday, a new episode is dropping and we've been pretty consistent. I can't remember we're up to 68, 69, I can't remember. Um, so episodes that is. So uh subscribe, become part of the flat out RC family. Anyway, let's move on. Let's have a look at what's been on my mind. Well, as I just said, uh, still in lockdown here in Melbourne. Uh, Lockdown in Sydney as well. Well, all of New South Wales are currently locked down. Not a good situation to be in. We thought we were over all of this, but we're still in it. And... uh, everybody's got the choice to get vaccinated. I've been fully vaccinated and I would encourage other people to so we can get back to the flying fields because we've been told by the powers that be that uh, nothing's going to change unless we get vaccinated. So I was back last weekend in the shed trying to do a few things. Motivation levels have been pretty low when it comes to finishing off my 30cc aerobatic model, the electric model that I'm building. Uh, just did a couple of things. But one thing I've realized I hate doing is soldering. I've never been good at it. I never understand it. I always feel like I've got the wrong soldering iron. If anybody can point me in the right direction. You know, my wife asked me today, uh, what do you want for Father's Day? Well, Father's Day coming up here in Australia and uh, I think it's 5th of September. And she said to me, what do you want? And I said, I don't know. A motorbike? And she said, no. Anyway, Maybe I need a new soldering iron because I'm just never happy with my soldering iron. I don't know what to get, what I should be looking for. So if you've got any tips, jump onto the flatoutrc.com.au website and just send me a message and give me your tips or Facebook, Instagram, whatever flatoutrc channel you're on. Just uh, send me a message and give me a few pointers on on uh, soldering irons. But I, I was able to get on the simulator. I jumped on the sim with my sim buddies. Uh the other day which was good it did take my computer an hour and 45 minutes to get going thanks to an update and a really 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 old slow computer that I use for my my sim time just took a long time to get going but got on there and well, one thing I realized is it's, it's like riding a bike a little bit rusty but uh the fingers know which way to move um, but we we're all of us were having a chat about projects that we've got uh ready to go as soon as we get out of lockdown so it's going to be one of those times again when we get when we get released that we'll all be at the flying fields and we'll have five five models to maiden uh, a lot of talk about the e-flight draco um, it's probably been that one foamy model that's got such a big buzz around it i've got mine sitting in my trailer ready and raring to go and i can't wait to give that a fly and, and test it out and I should have this 30cc electric model, uh, aerobatic model, ready to go as well. So I've got a couple of models up my sleeve. But it was funny. It's it, During these times when you're in, in a lockdown situation, it's amazing how people's minds wand- wander. And generally that wandering moves in the direction of spending money and buying something. So uh, one friend wants to build a Waco biplane. Uh, so he's bought a kit. Uh um friend of mine everyone knows that i love super chipmunks and i've got a long-term vision of building a super chipmunk well apparently there's one for sale up in new south wales a carl goldberg version but i sort of want something bigger so uh i jumped online and had a look and i thought oh should i just get it and just keep it there for many many years and so i've been fighting that urge to just make that investment because i know 20 years down the track i'm probably going to build one and i might not be able to get one then but anyway i'm still holding out. Uh, But uh, you know, we look, we seem to look to buy things. Um, Cosmo, who uh, used to design the Flat Out RC magazine, he was looking at RC helicopters and RC cars just so they had something to use at home. And I said, Cosmo, you'll drive the car around in the backyard for a couple of packs and then you'll be bored out of your brains and the helicopter, you run into the tree and that's it. You know, I said, well, why don't you build all those models? He's got a Southern Sailplanes T-Bird, brand new in the box glider. And I said, build that. Anyway, he, uh, it's just that, it's it's the doom and gloom surrounding a lengthy lockdown that I think shifts our mind to the internet and exploring and and seeing great things that we'd love to experience and so we want to spend more money. Maybe that's why bike stores and inline skate stores and things like that and even hobby stores have been doing quite well. Uh, But uh, speaking of hobby stores, I think a lot of hobby stores are suffering from a shortage of supply of stock. I know the guys at uh, Desert Aircraft Australia are, are pretty much selling out of uh, containers as they land. You know, there's such a demand and uh, so little supply, so uh, which is great to see for them. I'm really happy for Ian and Ian and Mark up there because they do such a good job. And uh, but you know, when you, from a commercial perspective, you can only make money if you've got product to sell, and if you can't get the product, well, it sometimes cannot be good for. Uh, Good for business, but hopefully it is in their case and uh, some of the other hobby stores around the country as well here in Australia. So anyway, uh, not much flying happening, uh, but always a simulator and we can always get in the shed. And I I suppose the highlight of my remodeling at the moment is producing this podcast. I'm really enjoying it. Um, uh, I've got another good uh, episode uh, in the can as well. Big response from last week's episode with Fraser Briggs. Uh, That was a, a really, really good podcast. A lot of fun. If you haven't listened to it, get online and listen to Fraser Briggs' podcast interview and because uh, it's hilarious. He's a, such a funny guy. And I'm probably going to have him back because he sent me a message the other day saying he's getting a lot of um, messages of positive feedback from his uh, interview. And he said he's remembered a few other stories. So I said, give me a few months and we'll come back and we'll get Fraser back on and uh, hear some more of his tales. So anyway, chin up, everyone. Uh, if you're not in lockdown, make the most of it. Uh, don't muck around. Uh, and uh, if you are in lockdown, well, just keep yourself busy as much as you can, and uh, we'll get through this. We're only, I think, at least a few months away. Guest time, my favorite part of the podcast. Uh, and this week, uh, I try. I've mentioned this before. I try to have a mixture of uh categories covered, and I've been looking for someone from the pattern scene to come come and join me, and I was just scouring on Facebook and uh, came across um, Russell, which I've met him before, no Russell, uh, Russell Edwards. Uh, comes from uh, Melbourne, Victoria. Um, oh, I didn't realise that he, he, he he's relatively new in the whole scheme of things of aero modelling. I, I can't remember the exact time, but it was he's at least 10 years into his uh, aero modelling scene, but um, really enjoys it and has been very, very involved in that um, F3A scene, including... Uh, traveling overseas to world champs, um, you know, competing through Europe. Like he, he, I remember a few years back, he went over for, um, to the world champs or something, but before that he went early and had a sort of extended holiday through Europe and um, through some connections, he had a model there to fly and he entered a whole bunch of different events throughout Europe. And I remember him putting posts up on Facebook and it was, it was a great, um, that's what I love about a positive aspect about Facebook is you can follow people's journeys and, and, and ride along with them. And, and I remember doing that. So it was good to have Russell on the podcast. Uh talk a lot of different things. But um yeah, we're talking F3A this week and some more. So stay tuned for some little extra snippets towards the end there. So here's my chat with Russell Edwards. We're back talking aerobatics on the Flat Art RC podcast. And joining me this week is an F3 podcast we'll call him a superstar, Russell Edwards. Thanks for joining me. Uh,
1: Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for that intro.
0: Yeah. Well, see, I've known you around that F3A scene for as long as I've been involved in the hobby, which is probably about 10 years now. But um, so we are going to delve a little bit deeper into the old uh, pattern flying, F3A flying. But before we do that, where did your journey in aero modeling begin? Well,
1: I, I got interested in first in modeling actually by watching an episode of Mythbusters where fly a fly model helicopter and that, uh, that's what, what first sparked my passion for it and then I built a model and um, went to the local club, the GMAC club in the Arambat, Melbourne and joined up there and started flying and um, uh, as I tend to do with new hobbies, I get a, like a kid with a new toy and I, I got hooked on it and... I've spent a lot of time flying there since.
0: That's hilarious. I've never heard anybody tell me they got into the hobby from watching an episode of Mythbusters.
1: What what (laughs) year are we talking? Uh, Around about 2009. That's when I first started.
0: So you you pretty much threw yourself into it wholeheartedly from that point onwards.
1: Yeah, I sure did. It helps that I worked for myself and had a bit of time, so I would spend uh, a lot of time at the club most days if the weather was good.
0: You said with Miss Buses you saw the radio control heli. Did you get into helis or straight into fixed wing?
1: No, into fixed wing. But I took up helis about a year after I started and did that for some years, but I've, I've given them away. Uh, I gave them away probably about six years ago.
0: It's interesting. Why, why did you give helicopters away? I'm just interested to
1: know. I just really wanted to focus on F3A. Um, also, that, you know, helicopters were popular for a while, but there seems to have been a uh, bit of a worldwide uh, decline in their in interest in them. Um, and that happened certainly at our club and it happened with me.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things, that, you know, I often talk about uh, motivating people to continue on the journey. And I think that period of time, we're talking 2011, 10, 11, 12, even from about 2007 onwards, um was really boom times for uh for RC helis And there was a great movement here in Melbourne of um RC Heli flying and the 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 guys, Arc RC and the work they did with around the heli scene was just phenomenal. And I got I got into some helis at that period of time as well. But uh I haven't flown a Heli for a while and I put it down to um it's just I find it stressful. I love them, but I just find them stressful and uh can't don't have enough time to spread across more disciplines in the hobby. I think I've covered everything. Now, what was uh, what what was your first model like? How did you did you learn? Did you did you go down the trainer route or the simulator? What was your story?
1: Yes, I started with a simulator, uh, real flight uh, version four point five, I think, and I built a model that was fairly similar to a boomerang. It was called a a Royal Air forty T.
0: Okay, and was it what a nitro? powered motor or
1: yes a nitro model so about the first two years i i uh, flew nitro models um and then moved fairly quickly into all electric and i started just after 36 meg was started it was phasing out and 2.4 coming in so i've always been 2.4
0: yeah were you what, what radio brand were you using
1: uh spectrum yeah I was gonna and i still use spectrum
0: yeah so do I. I think back back in that era when the um I had a I've got one of the first DX7 transmitters still it works fine. Um I've got a well I've got another Spectrum transmitter as well but my original one was the DX7 and yeah that 2.4 gig technology we take it for granted now but it really revolutionized things. Now the and, and when you went to the hobby uh, when when you went to the field did you already sort of have some sort of dexterity as a result of playing around on the sim or did you have an instructor guide you through the
1: steps? I definitely had an instructor guiding me through, which was uh, which was essential. But I had used the sim quite a lot, and there's no doubt it helped me enormously.
0: Yeah, they do. And then, okay, what was the next step after that? You 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 mucked around with that for trainer for a while, and, and how did you keep on progressing?
1: Well, okay, so I had a number of uh, trainers and and uh, uh, sport models, um, and then it was probably about uh, about a year later. That I really started to uh, get interested in the precision aerobatics and uh, F3A, but yeah, up to that point it was just a number of sports models and um, including a foamy the, the Striker. That was a, a really um, model that I really liked flying early days.
0: They're pretty fast, the Strikers. Mm. Yeah, Speed Demon. And so then you start moving into into the pattern sort of scene. Um, Who led you into that? Was it it something that you just saw at an an event or, now how did you come across pattern flying?
1: Okay, so there was a guy at the club who'd been into uh, F3A4 some years. Um, I don't know how long. Lionel Connell was his name. And I I liked watching him fly and was impressed about the precision and the the smoothness and the the way it looked. And uh, that's what really got me started. So I looked up uh, what competitions were around and went along to the Started going along to the uh, the events organised by the Victorian uh, chapter of S three A.
0: What was the first plane that you sort of invested in when it came to pattern flying? Because you would have been it would have been all electric by that stage.
1: Um, I just oh, well, what was it? <laughs> you it's stretching my memory now. But I had um, a Focus two that was an IC model. I had um, I just had a little about a 50 size one with a, a YS70 in it as well. And I don't think now what the name of it was, but that was a nice sort of model and that flew very well for a long time.
0: And uh, so at that point were you solely committed to F3A?
1: Um, so at that, for the, a lot of the early days I still was doing a lot of helis and outside of that there was a little bit of sports model, but I, I pretty much switched over to F3A pretty quickly. It was F3A and helis for a, a while and then just fully f3a and i rarely fly anything except an f3a model Though i have tried some imac as well uh, and i do enjoy imac also and find the two disciplines working very well together
0: yeah they do
1: in fact having said that i i thought that uh, helicopters and f3a also worked very well together there's no doubt that uh, they uh, doing both helped me with both of them
0: yeah that's interesting i wonder whether it's because you know, you're challenging your brain and, and your fingers to respond and all those nerves have to work and muscles need to work together and maybe that could help you with the the pattern side of things. One of my friends, Paul Marlin, you probably know who um he flew – he got into helicopters around that period of time as well and uh, he just flew them like a pattern plane. It was amazing how precise he was in the helicopter. And I, was sitting there, I said, oh, you just annoy me, Paul. You just fly so neatly with no matter what you got in your hands. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, a lot yeah, of no, practice. he's
1: a nice guy. Yeah. But no, what you said is correct. Yeah, everything you said is correct. I, I thought early days that, uh, of course, with the helicopter, you've got to be a bit more responsive with the throttle and you've got to use the rudder or uh, the tail, of course, in a helicopter. And using those two um, controls a lot more helped me with F3A. But likewise, what you just said was that the precision involved in F3A helped me with the heli flying. Mm,
0: mm. Did you compete in helis at all or what kind of flying were you doing with the helicopters?
1: I did a few uh, F3C comps and there was a bit of uh, 3D comps. I sort of got involved in starting up the F3N movement, which is still going, I believe, in Australia, but I haven't been involved in it for a long time now.
0: And Okay, so, you of course, you entered through sort of the sportsman category and then uh, what level are you up to now in, in, in the pattern flying?
1: Uh, so, in, in Australia, we have sportsman, advanced, Expert F3A is the top category, and then we have a subgroup we call Masters. So I'm in the Masters category now.
0: What sequence are the Masters flying?
1: a same sequence as uh, the F3A category, the P sequence, the preliminary sequence, but we often fly the F, the final sequence, which is a significantly harder sequence.
0: Yeah, okay. Now let's just talk a bit about, I want you to share your experience about getting into pattern and your practice and what what was involved and what you were focusing on. Because, you know, we can all go and buy a pattern plane and just take it out to the field. And, and by far and away, the best flying planes you can buy. Like I've had a, a 50 size, you know, Sebat Mythos plane and it was just so easy to fly and could fly straight lines beautifully. But then again, as you know, it's not, you know, you've got to position the manoeuvres correctly in the in the box as well. But, you know, that getting into pattern, turning up to your first competition, what was it like?
1: Um, yeah, it was a bit nerve wracking. You know, you you sort of under the under the uh, the pump and uh, being examined for what you're doing rather than just flying around tearing holes in the sky. Um, but everyone in the F three A scene was very very friendly and very welcoming and very helpful. So you know, it was it's uh, it's been a fantastic thing for me.
0: Yeah. Then um, so when it came to to the, the practice and the, the, the skill of flying the sequence early on, what were the challenges that you found?
1: Oh, there were, well, many challenges, obviously. You know, start off with, uh, like anyone else, you don't fly terribly straight or terribly accurately, and just flying a straight line uh, from left to right in front of you instead of coming in and going out was uh, the early challenges, trying to keep things neat and precise. and um, yeah, there were many and varied challenges, but uh, just building my skills. But I enjoyed the, the, the whole uh, learning and skill building process that went along and still goes along to this very day with F3A.
0: Flying straight and level is a very underestimated uh, skill. There's a lot of people that can't fly straight and level. And as you know, with a lot of those aerobatic manoeuvres, if you don't start straight and level, you're not going to end straight and level either. And, uh, but um, yeah, it's, it's a, definitely a big skill. And then, so no doubt, you know, you start progressing through the ranks. How much time did you have to put in to to keep on progressing?
1: I put in a lot of time. As I said, I wasn't terribly busy work-wise, so I I was spending most days at the club where I could uh, and um, doing a hell of a lot of flying. And, yeah, I progressed fairly quickly comparatively, but it did involve a hell of a lot of uh, time at the field and a lot of flying.
0: Did you have any uh, mentors that were guiding you along the way?
1: Um, yes, within the um, within the uh, the scene itself, not so much of my club because there wasn't any other F3A parts of my club at the time, which is something I felt a, a bit of a lack of. But within the hobby, there was many guys uh, like Norm Morris and Dennis Traversaris and Glenn Orchard and those sort of guys you know, helped me enormously, um, you know, uh, early days and to this day.
0: Yeah, yeah, a good bunch of guys. Every one of those names... Uh... He's a good guy and really helpful as well uh, and so one thing I've noticed with pattern planes just talking a bit about the planes now and they are they're like the formula one of the sky really uh you know now everybody's basically flying a, a composite airframe two meter by two meter predominantly electric uh what's the weight limit again is it four kilos the weight
1: uh, five kilos, five including kilos, including yeah. batteries for uh, electric models.
0: Yeah, and we've seen a, you know a lot of changes to patent aircraft over the years. Uh, if we compare the planes that you were flying when you first started in patent, say to now, what are, what are some of the differences between
1: them? I think the number one difference would be the fact that almost everyone's gone electric, uh, whereas when I started, um, everyone was IC but pretty quickly people were moving over to electric. That was the major change. Um, Certainly the composite models, um, and very few people build their own models these days. That that would be the major changes.
0: Yeah, it's like nobody would build a pattern plane now and the composite models do dominate. What what models are you currently flying?
1: An Ascent, built by Hu Yang.
0: Okay, so where are most of the models coming from nowadays? All from China or...?
1: Um, uh, companies like Hu Yang, um, and there are a number of other companies, probably largely uh, based in Asia, and those that aren't based in Asia are um, built for, uh, built in Asia for other companies.
0: Yeah, yeah. The I always, I actually love the look of pattern plates, but it'd be very hard to decide which model to go with. Uh, how do you, how do you determine which model to go and buy next?
1: <laughs> well, that's a good question, uh, A lot of the early days I, I probably bought a lot of second-hand models of other people and it was just really the availability. And when I needed one, well, when I destroyed the prior one, I, I look, looked around and saw it was available. Um, uh, but the, the essence out of Hu I really do like those models and just the, the quality of the build is very, very high. And you know that that means it's going to be more accurate which is very important.
0: Are you allowed to use um, carbon fibre in, in patent models? Is it illegal? or Yes.
1: You can Yeah, there's no problem with carbon fibre, yeah.
0: But are many, many planes made out of carbon fibre or just purely fibreglass?
1: No, they tend mostly to be made out of uh, fibreglass or a composite and uh, a little bit of carbon fibre used around the landing gear and the the motor mount.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder whether someone will splash out into a full carbon fibre airframe, but I think sometimes the models can get... Uh, too light and not fly as well, really, probably that fine balance. What's the minimum weight, actually, for the – what's the minimum weight for a pattern plane?
1: Five there kids. is no so, minimum, but oh, what no you minimum, said is yeah. correct. No, there's no minimum. But what you said is correct. Um, if they're too light, they tend not to track as straight and tend to be thrown around by the wind. So, yeah, going too light is not necessarily a good thing.
0: Yeah. And what about – let's talk about some of the gear that's in the models nowadays. Uh, is there a dominant brand of motor or is it uh, sort of mixed? Because a lot of them are um,
1: yeah, gearbox. The motor's, changing. Kind of thing. Yeah, the motors are changing quite a bit. You know, it used to be, of course, IC, and then with electrics, it was your, your single uh, prop electric. But nowadays the Contra motors are becoming uh, a lot more popular and there's a lot of different variations in Contra motors and different uh, builds coming out. So that's that's evolving quite quickly, as are the ESCs too.
0: Yeah, because I think well the aim for for pattern flying nowadays compared to say back in the the good old days in the eighties and whatever, where the pattern planes were so fast. Like I, one of the fastest planes I'd ever seen that fly was actually Eddie Edwards flying one of his old pattern planes from the eighties, and it was a rocket ship. And he said, "Yeah, I'm, he was pulled vertical, and this thing just went it was just amazing the speed." And he said, "Yeah, I'm at half throttle." But nowadays, (laughs) it's very much about controlling your speed and having an even speed, even in descents. How does the contra-rotating motor help in that regard?
1: Um, It does help quite a lot. But what you said is correct. They used to be a lot faster, and sometimes they compensated for the lack of power uh, with speed. Um, But, yeah, the contra-motors, to answer your question, um, yeah, the contra-motors provide more and more effective braking uh, on a downline and hence uh, you can get a more consistent speed throughout a manoeuvre, which helps with the, the smoothness, gracefulness and the general appearance of the manoeuvre.
0: Yeah, the well, that whole concept now that you mentioned ESC technology advancing and we're seeing you know, patent pilots use the braking features in the ESCs. Do you think that's a fair thing to have to allow that or do you think it should be well just fly the plane as best you can without these aids kind of thing
1: um i think it's a natural of human endeavor we're always pushing the boundaries and trying to improve what we do and so no i think it's a fair thing and it's going to happen anyway
0: have you noticed through your time in competing that you know the plane's easier to fly now than what they were even say five years ago
1: i'd say yes yeah they definitely are they're just Better built um, and generally easier to operate, and they look neater and cleaner in the sky. Yeah, that's true.
0: Okay, so when when you're, you know, one of the other things that we know is critical in in the in the, with a pattern plane is the setup of that plane. And uh, you know, when you get a brand new model, how much time are you spending in setting up that model?
1: Yeah, that does take quite a bit of time. Um, exactly in in hours, I couldn't couldn't say, but I'd be thinking around the. 20 to 30 hours in setup. Um, And, of course, a lot of the time you're just making sure that everything is straight, everything is even. You know, you want your servos to be, you know, dead centre, the control surfaces to be dead centre. The geometry setup is quite critical.
0: Are you still using uh, plastic-geared servos in pattern planes or...?
1: No, metal-geared servos and digital servos as a rule.
0: Yeah, because I thought they used to try to use sort of nylon or something like that because it was had less slop than the metal gears. That's what I heard years ago. But what what how many what kind of torque figures do you need on, on uh on the surveys for say ailerons and things like that?
1: Oh, um you got me a little bit there. It's not that high because of course you're not looking generally for a a high uh, control surface deflection. But exactly in uh torque I I couldn't say off the top of my head.
0: Yeah the uh yeah, control throws wouldn't be that massive, uh, only for maybe snaps. But uh, when you're flying, so, are you, you know, what are you doing with your rate switches when you're flying? You know, are you keeping it consistent? I or- try and minimize
1: the workload. You really turn down the rates of all the control surfaces to really the minimum that you need to complete the maneuver. Because if it's the rates are uh, too high, you tend to get very, you can see a jerkiness within uh, any given manoeuvre, so you you turn the rates down as much as possible. I try to minimise the workload, so I use stick switching to to go into a snap mode, and I only have one switch I turn on and off for uh, spin entry and spinning. And then I find in actual fact, as I said, with the minimum movement, I don't really have enough control quite to land safely, so I have a a landing mode that gives me a bit of extra control. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: it's great for flying, but just yeah, can't land the thing. Yeah, that that's, oh, that, that's that'd true. Be, yes. <laughs> that'd be hardly any throw. Gee, that's. uh I always know when I had my pattern plane up in the air. I, I especially on the aileron, the roll rate. I'd try to get it sort of the ma- the maximum I could get away with to do a nice slow roll. And I, I've and I've seen other people at my flying club. You know, fly pattern planes, and the first thing I say to them is, "Your roll rate, dial back everything. It's all too much. You know, if you want to smooth things out, just dial it back." Uh, and then they they just fly beautifully. Now you yeah, started great. to get involved. You were involved with a bit of the administration side, weren't you? With um,
1: um well, yeah, I was on the APA committee for about two years.
0: Why did you do that? Just to get involved to help out.
1: <laughs> good question. Yes, well, I I was yeah trying to help out and put something back into the hobby. So, well,
0: we've had um, we've always had a a, a good. Especially here in Victoria, the patent scene has always been pretty strong uh, for a long time. You know, when when we look at that aerobatic competition side, IMAX come back a bit now through some good work that Michael andrusic has been doing. But uh, the patent scene has just always seemed to have a good following, and especially at world championship level. Now, you've you've attended a few world championships, haven't you?
1: I've attended three and competed at two of the world championships. Yes. Oh,
0: okay. Uh, what was that? What what was the experience like in 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 going over and, and and flying
1: internationally? Oh, it was just fantastic. Look, the the skill level at a world championships is just amazing, um, and it's it's inspiring. It's very humbling, <laughs> um, but it's fantastic to see the the world's best flying and the, the skill level that they put into it is just amazing.
0: It's, it's interesting. We've just come off the back of the the Olympic Games and. And uh, as I get older, I think I can appreciate the athletes and the effort that they make a lot more than I did say so when I was younger. And, and the thing that just blew my mind when I saw these wonderful athletes is even the ones that were you know weren't making a final. you know that they'd spent so much time. But the interesting thing for me is what's the difference between the person that finished eighth and the person that finished first? and saying the swimming pool is often not a lot of you know seconds. But what, what did you experience? What was the difference between, you know, the top five competitors versus everybody else? What were they doing that others weren't doing?
1: Yeah, that that's a good question. Yeah, I'd say the top 10 really are all just amazing, amazing uh, pilots. And the top 30, you know, are only only back a little bit. Um, there's a very large area in the middle there where there, there's only a very small difference in the skill level. But it's certainly true that the top, 10, the top five, are just a, a cut above the other people. There's no doubt about that.
0: Do you think it's, you know, they're, they're, they're professionals at it, that they're, they're really, really dedicated to it, or is it just something that you think they've got a natural ability?
1: Oh, it's a combination of things. Certainly dedication, uh, natural ability, but I think a lot of them just started at a lot younger age. Yeah, and that makes a big difference.
0: That's true. I actually, just before I I got on air with you, I was having a bit of hit of table tennis. My my family's, well, my son and I got into table tennis, and and he's really really keen. And he was he watched the Olympics and saw the table tennis players from China and that kind of things. me watching things on YouTube, and and he was mentioning one player, and I said, yeah, he started when he was four, and he and yeah. he basically was trained at an elite level from a very very young age and it was drummed into him so no no wonder at the age of 13 he was you know almost top 10 in the world or something because he'd had that much time and as we know you know when you're younger you learn a bit quicker but um yeah it just seems that some of these people just work at a different level above everybody else and you know when leading up to those you know visits overseas to the World Champs, how much training did you? were you putting in? Like how many times a week were you getting out to the field?
1: Um, yeah, I certainly did a lot of uh, training leading up to uh, both events. But I, the last one, I did a, a three-month tour of uh, Europe, um, travelling around to different competitions, and that was sort of my lead in training. So I went to competitions every week and I was training pretty much every day.
0: That was, I remember that because I was following it on Facebook because you were doing uh, posts onto Facebook and this is, a lot of people don't like Facebook, but for me, I was able to go on that journey with you and experience, you could share that experience and Facebook allowed me to do that, to have that little sneak peek and follow your travels and the different events and did you carry a plane with you or did you borrow planes when you were over there?
1: Well, in all, I've actually done three trips of that nature. And the first two times I took uh, a model over with me, but uh, I met a lot of fantastic people over there and some great friends and uh, some friends in the Netherlands, the uh, Vannevecht, um, built actually my Ascent, my Ascent Contra that I used um, during that trip and the World Championship. So I, I, I travelled over without a model and collected that model from them. Which was uh, I'm very grateful for their uh, their efforts
0: yeah that I tell you what every time I've had somebody on the podcast that's traveled overseas you know Dennis Travis Eros and the scale guys I just don't know how they do it but uh, you know it's a, at least the, the pattern planes don't weigh a lot but there's still a pretty big airframe to bring back no doubt you had uh, big boxes and everything uh, where's the next where's the, where's the next pattern world Champs?
1: Well, they were supposed to be in America um, around about this time. But, of course, with COVID, uh, they had to be cancelled, unfortunately. So the next World Championships is in Australia in 2023. they normally every second year. Um, it's well, October, October-ish or September, I forget which month. But it's in 2023, so Australia's lucky enough to uh, host, be hosting the next World Championships. And there will have been a four-year break instead of the usual two. So uh, we expect it to. We're hoping for it to be a big event.
0: That's um, Is that up a casino or
1: casino? That's correct. Yeah, northern New South Wales.
0: Who's organising all that? That'd be a big effort.
1: Well, the APA, the Australian uh, Precision Aerobatics Committee, will be organising that. Yeah, you it's think- really, James McCallan, who uh, who, who uh, drove it to make it happen, which was a fantastic effort by him. Yeah,
0: it is. Do you think he will make it there?
1: I think we'll make it. Well, if we're not uh, still under lockdown with COVID, yes, I think it'll it'll be a great venue, and I think it will happen. And I think it'll be very popular.
0: Yeah, I was I, when they when it was announced, I thought, oh, I've just got to go there. You no, know, there would be some great pilots just to watch, you know, and experience some of the some of the world's best. So, yeah, fingers crossed that it does um, it does actually happen. Which is you know, it's just so, the the times that we live in are just so uncertain that uh, it's yeah it's just difficult to know what's going to be going on uh, now you've you've obviously you know you mentioned that you, you did some traveling overseas and and you, you visit a lot of flying fields what have been you know what has been your favorite flying field to
1: go to oh there's so many um, there's so many really great flying fields in Europe and Um, So many fantastic people that I've met over there. Everyone was just incredibly hospitable and um, I had a fantastic time. I I actually think everywhere. But some favourites, really hard to say. The Liechtenstein field uh, is often referred to as the mecca of F3A and that was uh, definitely a favourite. But there were many of them. The Sivri in Belgium.
0: What makes that field special?
1: Oh... It's uh, very geared towards F3A. Um, That's Wolfgang Matt's uh, home field. And I would just say largely the people and just that the field's very well set up. A lot of the fields in Europe have very, very good facilities. You can see that the the clubs have been there for some time and the the club members have put in a huge amount of effort and uh, time and expense, obviously, to uh, set up their clubs.
0: Yeah, but I remember... As a child, reading magazines and seeing, you know, um, model flying fields in the U.S. and and thinking, oh, wouldn't that be amazing? And you know, we've got some good clubs here, but sometimes they're not the same level because, you know, it, it is very expensive. You know, when I travel to China, you know, you'd see asphalt runways, and they, I'd say to them, how much did it cost to put the asphalt runway down? They say, oh, it didn't cost much. It's very cheap here in China to put asphalt down. It was forty thousand dollars. And I'm thinking $40,000, and my dad was in road construction, so I was sort of roughly no cost. And I'm thinking the average flying field here would probably be $400,000 to asphalt like they did there, you know, 130 metres, you know, 40 metres wide kind of asphalt runways. But, uh, yeah, they had the government helping them out a bit for with that and that kind yeah. of thing. But, um, but yeah, it's it's one of those things that, it, like you mentioned, it's, it's about the effort and the expense that uh, – you want to put into that kind of thing. And uh, it's, I think it's getting harder and harder to to rally the troops to try to put in a bit of a working bee even uh, at most clubs nowadays. But oh, I don't know, times are changing. Uh, yep. Now, because you've been in that F3A scene for quite a while now, what tips would you give anyone looking at getting into F3A? Um,
1: we'll certainly give it a go. You know, it, it's, it's uh, very rewarding, it's certainly uh, great for skill building. There's a lot of great people in it, so you'll get a lot of uh, advice and help. Um, but just give it a go. You don't need to start off spending a lot of money and have an F3A model. You can go along with your sports model, uh, get involved in the sportsman class and um, enjoy a few competitions and then see where you want to take it from there.
0: The you know, Would you go straight to purchasing a, a full 2 meter by 2 meter pattern plane or – do you think that going with something a bit a bit more cost effective early on to see whether you like it would be a smarter smarter choice?
1: I generally recommend just start off going along with uh, whatever model you've got, a sportsman model, which you can yeah you know, sports model, which you can then be in the sportsman's category. Um, you don't necessarily want to go for a two meter model. There's some good you know one point two meter type sort of models out there as well. So no, I wouldn't uh, go straight to a two meter model.
0: Yeah, yeah, because it's a they seem to be getting more and more expensive, some of these patent planes. I know the exchange rate down here in Australia is not working to our favour, but, uh, yeah, things are getting more expensive uh, across the board in the hobby, I think, down here.
1: Yeah, well, it is. And then the next step is after you get involved and, um, you know, decide you want to do it, is look around for a good second-hand model. You can pick up some good deals generally there.
0: Yeah. And what about... um? What about things like running gear, you know, with servos that you choose and that kind of thing? Um, are there any particular brands that you're, you go to when, when it comes to kitting out your, your planes?
1: Yeah, this is uh, an area, where, again, where there's a lot of different uh, opinions on it. I do like the Futaba s- servos, um, but if you're going to buy a second-hand model, well, you'd, you'd use whatever is in it.
0: Yeah, just go and fly it, you know, especially early yeah. on when you first get into it, it's just about stick time, (laughs) more hours in the air, the better off you're going to be. And, uh, you know, do you think, you know, I had Eddie Edwards on very early on in the podcast. Um, and, yeah, and he said that he was practicing by himself a lot and he became very good at practicing his mistakes and his errors. And the only time that he realized he was making mistakes or wasn't flying as well as when he went to competitions, Do you think that it's important to have other pattern pilots around you when you're practising to sort of critique what's
1: happening? Yeah, I do. I'd agree with both of those comments. Um, We all do that. I think you still get something out of practising even if you are potentially practising your own mistakes. But certainly getting feedback from other um, more experienced pilots is absolutely essential. But of recent times um, I've been involved in um, developing the, the flight coach system, which you may have heard of, no, tell me about it. Okay, so a fellow by the name of Thomas David in the, the UK who I met when I was over there last time uh, had the initial idea and a, a fellow from my club, Arta Zevo, has done a lot of the programming work. And the idea is you use um, technology from the quadcopters, GPS um, positioning systems to record the flight, which you then can display on a computer screen, for example. And the feedback it gives you and the perspective it gives you um, after the flight to help self-analyze is just amazing. And it's only quite new, hasn't been around that long. But if um, I had this, you know, 10 years ago, most certainly would have helped me improve my flying a lot quicker.
0: So it's basically using accelerometers and things like that and capturing. It's just a data capturing device, isn't it, that then you can map on a computer and see exactly what went on. That's great.
1: Correct, exactly. I'll, I'll send you a link on it.
0: Yeah. Is it expensive or
1: not? No, no, it's fairly cheap. The hardware is about $150 and Arter very kindly has donated all of his efforts to uh, developing it, so the software is free.
0: That's cool because that's still accessible for, for most patent pilots as well. It's not a big expense really if you're really into it, um, but that's great. I wonder whether the iMac people have cottoned onto it because they'd love that as well.
1: Yes, it's being looked at with uh, helis, iMac, and even some full-size people are interested in it.
0: Do you think that you could see a day when that kind of technology will come into judging?
1: Well, that, that's a little difficult to say. Judging involves a lot more than just the, the, the yeah, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> it involves a lot more than just the, the basic data and what's flown, the, the smoothness. I, I think it will help. But I think that's another big step away yet.
0: Yeah. Well, one of my uh, my criticisms, say, with the IMAX scene, I think the pattern scene might be similar. I'm not sure if you'll correct me. But in IMAX, the fellow competitors judge each other uh, because there's no dedicated judges at the event. And so the judging of the person's flight is really up to that individual judge's knowledge of what things should look like and... And there's discrepancies between, you know, the knowledge of different judges. What happens in an F3A event here in Australia? Is it the same kind of thing where competitors are judging each other or do you have dedicated judges?
1: There are – it's exactly the same as IMAC. Uh, We have people from other classes judging. And, look, judging is always a bit of an issue and will always be an issue where humans are involved. I'm not certain that there is a way to automate it, but maybe that is the way of the future. In Europe, I saw more the case where there was uh, dedicated judges, people who came along to the competitions purely to judge. And each system, what well, we have in Australia with IMAC and F3A, compared to Europe, each have their advantages and disadvantages.
0: Are you using an electronic system now for, for scoring?
1: Yes, uh, the not system we're using nowadays, which was developed by a fellow in um, in France.
0: Yeah, that's right. That would probably help a lot. Collating at least
1: scores—it's been very, very good. It's a great system, and um, yes, collating scores is a big advantage. But the second big advantage is that uh, as a judge, you don't have to look away from the the model flying to write a score down.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I'm just laughing because I was in China judging an aerobatic competition with one of my friends, and uh, it was very early days in the competition, and he'd you know. He said oh, they wanted to be a judge so he said yeah okay i'll judge and um, we're judging almost like imac kind of sequences and they would allocated these well, we'll call them lackeys to help us write the scores down so we would just be looking at the sky and then we'd call out a number and they'd have to write it down but what my friend was doing is he'd turn around to the person and say okay that's a five and he'd look down at the person's notepad and i would turn around to him and said keep you looking at the... Pl- he just missed the last manoeuvre. He said, well, what did you score them? And he wrote that down. I said, just keep on looking up in the air and stop looking at the no- person's notepad every time you give <laughs> them a number. So, yeah, that's why I made him head of the uh, flat-out RC peanut gallery.
1: <laughs> uh, well, there you go. That's exactly what you said was one of the problems with manual writing and, and with using a scribe or a, a penciler, as we call them. Yeah. Um, they have their own disadvantages too. The, the automatic system makes that much better much better, and um, yeah, you don't have to look away at all. Yeah,
0: do, do you ever record video record your flights and to review your flights or not? It's pretty hard. I know no. patent planes fly a long way away, but uh...
1: video, any video recording is really not worth, worthwhile. Um, either the model looks far too small mm. to, to really see what's going on, or if you zoom in on it, you can't really see what's being yeah, flown, you can't see the maneuver.
0: Now, I want you to dispel a myth for me. Okay. There's this myth that F3A pilots think that they sort of uh, rule, the, uh, rule the air and that when they're at the flying field, they hog the airspace. Right. <laughs> I hear this all the time and I've got my own opinion on it, but I'll, I'll share my opinion after you share yours. Do you think that's the case?
1: Um, certainly. I don't think that uh, they want to hog all the space, but certainly it is, is nicer and better and safer not to have uh, someone else crossing paths with you. And um, it's a bit hard to focus on your schedule if you worry that someone else is going to have a mid-air collision with you. But um, I've always tried to avoid doing that because I know that it will lead to resentment. Um, Fortunately, at my club, I can fly on an east-west area while the rest of the the general flyers fly more north-south. But I try to avoid ever demanding that I get the sky to myself because I know it'll just lead to problems.
0: Yeah, that's true and I, I agree. I think that uh, most patent pilots uh, understand what they want to do and, and they also respect other people's uh, wishes as well and uh, generally back down. So but yeah, it's like IMac flying, you know any of those precision aerobatic you know sequences that take up a bit of sky where you have to fly straight lines, not in a circuit. You're always going to ruffle a few feathers, but uh, I I find that sometimes people in our hobby are very quick to make judgments on others and, you know, oh, that person thinks he's better than all of us because, you know, he's flying his pattern plane and he hogs the sky. It's like, no, he's just practicing. And I'll tell you what, if you just go and put your plane on the runway and take off, you'll probably land. (laughs) So don't worry. But uh, and and, you, and you, like you know, you got to pick your time. Sometimes you really want to do some intense practicing. Well, you're not going to turn up on Sunday Club Day when you know 30 other pilots have turned up on the day and think you're going to get a lot of practice in. So go and do something else. Uh, yeah,
1: well, that's true. Yes.
0: <laughs> now, before we move on to some other areas of your of your flying, you know, uh, what do you hope to achieve with your with your uh, F3A flying?
1: Uh, what I hope to achieve. um Well, I'm just enjoying flying, enjoying improving my skills and the flight coach system, as I said, has sort of given me a bit of a a new perspective on it. So I'm hoping to uh, use that a lot more over the next uh, coming months and years. Um, It would be great to be able to compete in the next world championships that's in Australia, but I think the competition for that amongst uh, the local pilots will be very high. Um, I don't know, I think just Continue to do what I've been doing. I'd like to do another trip to Europe and travel around and visit the flying fields and the, um, all the friends that I've made over there.
0: Wouldn't that be good? It's like, it's, you think you're appreciating those experiences more in the, you know, in the current climate?
1: Oh, definitely. You know, just uh, it seems so easy to do it then, yet now it's, uh, it's impossible. So, yes, it, it uh, was a fantastic experience that I now hold very dear. Uh, especially since I can't do it anymore in the current
0: climate, that is. It, it hit me uh, when I was watching the closing ceremony of the Olympic Games and, you know, there's a lot of culture and, you know, the passing of the baton on to, to, to France, so, that, you know, they're going to take it on and, and just looking at that and especially what was happening in Japan and the culture and the food and all that kind of stuff and it, it took me back. Or you know, It was only in 2019, I did a lot of travel throughout Asia and I love Asian food and all that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, watching this is making me miss those opportunities that you get. But I know they'll come around. I still think they're a few years away, but I know we'll be back out there again. But uh, when you think about it, we're going to lose a few years of our life where we weren't able to to be totally free to travel like that. But, oh, well, we can't complain oh, too scary. much, Camry, now we're, it's, now we're talking about first world problems here. Uh, now, <laughs> a, a, outside of your pattern flying, are you flying any other form of uh, aeromodelling you know, categories?
1: Well, so I've been doing some uh, iMac as well and enjoying the iMac, and I said that the F3A and iMac disciplines are, are, are far more similar than they're different, so that, that's that been very good too, but different models and just a bit of a different feel to it.
0: Uh, what model are you flying there?
1: Oh, I have a, uh, a, a Sukhoi 29 2.6 metre with a... Dle one hundred and twenty motor in it. So back to IC. I swore I'd never go back to IC motors, but here we are.
0: Yeah, you got to when you get to those. You know, in IMAC. You know, a friend of mine wanted to compete in IMAC with an electric model, but they said, "Oh, we do back to back sequences, and you just won't have the flight time, and we won't let you change. You know, land and change packs. It disrupts everything." So he didn't end up competing, but uh, but yeah, it's. um, I've, I've literally got you know gases and, and electric planes i haven't got anything in between but um, so outside of outside of the aerobatic planes you do any scale or gliders or anything like that
1: no i don't really do any other flying um you know there's a bit of bit uh, here and there um, i like to uh, fly these models called assassins where we try to oh, yeah. do a bit of aerial combat but beyond that no i don't really do any other aeromodelling nowadays
0: well that's surprising because you fly full-size gliders as well
1: Yes, I do. Yeah. And
0: I'm surprised you don't fly model gliders.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've never got into the model model gliders, and um, yeah, I have thought about that myself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so. tell me a bit about your, your full size flying, because I'm intrigued. Because I had a go of a full size glider. Um, oh, it was a year ago, maybe now. Uh, your last last January? No, not last.
1: Yeah, I saw January. your uh, Facebook uh, post on it. In fact, you yeah. a fellow uh, your pilot was uh, Paul Dealy, who's a good friend of mine. At the club, he was a great pilot. Man, he yeah, was... he is a great guy too.
0: Oh, I, I could, the thing that blew my mind is coming into land. How he could basically do a spot landing with the thing.
1: Yep. No, well, there's no go rounds in a glider. You've got to get it right every time.
0: Yeah. So, so you fly where at Benella?
1: At Bonella, that's right. So years ago, I did um, actually my first venture into um, aviation. I was skydiving, which I did for about three or four years. Oh, really? And then I did a PPL, private pilot licence with Howard Aircraft Learning and Cessnas and Pipers. And then it was about four years ago I got into gliding and I've been really, really enjoying the gliding.
0: Yeah, they are. they do intrigue me. I always say that I love this idea of that single-seat experience, like a single-seat race car and a glider and uh, the thing that, the overwhelming feeling that I had when I went in the glider besides starting to feel motion sickness at the end was uh, how safe I felt in the glider, which totally blows my mind how comfortable I was sitting in that glider and feeling totally safe. Where <laughs> do you think, no motor, what's going to happen? And the glide, the way they can glide and catch thermals just uh, and the view, of course. Did you, did you learn at Vanella? Did you go the yes, course I then? did.
1: I did a, a week, what they call a flying start course, which is a, a week-long course, uh, hopefully to go solo, which I did go solo within that course. Yeah. And then just stayed on and kept flying more two-seaters and then um, fairly quickly, after about a month, I suppose, moved into single-seaters.
0: And have you got your own glider or do you just hire one near there? I have
1: just a, a few months ago purchased a half share with a, another fellow at uh, Benalla. Um, of a glider, which is called an ASW twenty-eight.
0: Oh, beautiful! And uh, so that 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 single seat glider is the performance markedly different to the the the, the twin seater.
1: Uh, yes, yeah, they're a lot more responsive. That's that's the main difference. But beyond that, yeah, their um, glide ratio and their ability to thermal is about the same. But they certainly are more responsive.
0: Yeah, what's your longest flight been? How many k's you travelled?
1: Well, my longest flight's um, five hundred kilometres so far. Gee, that's a big one. Where'd you get to? I did uh, three three five hundred kilometre flights uh, last season. I went uh, to a place called the Rock, which is near Wagga. Yeah, and then out to Daniloquin, thereabouts, okay. and then back to Vanuatu.
0: That's crazy. That's a that's a big trip, <laughs> really, and and. Yeah did you was it a problem trying trying to find lift at all or was it really good days
1: i'd have to say in every single flight you hit a a, one or two times when you struggle to find lift and you're hoping you're hoping you will find something and hoping and and obviously built uh combining that with uh, skill and hopefully some skill and experience to find some lift but there's always a moment where you're worried you're not going to find something and you're going to have to outland and Last season I had, um, I think, eight outlandings, seven outlandings. Oh,
0: really? Now tell me about that experience of outlandings because that that fascinates me because you basically got to pick a paddock somewhere and you're hoping that that paddock is smooth enough for you to get down in one piece. How have your outlandings been?
1: Well, every one of them has been successful, fortunately, not good, and uh, no damage to (laughs) any gliders so far. But I have to tell you the very first one I did was one of the scariest things I've ever done. Um, but then, after you do the first one, you just have it, it's you've done it already, and the second one's just more like, oh, well, here we go again, instead of being something rather terrifying.
0: Do you ever get out to uh towards Mount Buffalo? I've seen a few gliders get out there.
1: Yes, I have flown to Mount Mount Buffalo and uh flown around the uh the car park and the horn up there. Oh, really?
0: Yeah, yeah. I've seen when I when I did uh, a little flight there, I, I was watching a lot of the YouTube videos and I just I just love the idea and the challenge of flying a glider like that, and uh, yeah, it's just the thing that blew my mind as well as coming into land. How effective the spoilers are!
1: it just yes, no, it was just very
0: effective. amazing. Like, the thing just stopped, you know. But um, yeah, I've got fond memories. The only thing is the motion sickness I started to feel. But uh, my friend Ido Segev, I rang him up after it, and he said, "Get back up there." Go and do it again, keep on going, you'll grow out of it. Just keep on going. <laughs> I went, Okay, you know, just give me a bit of time to recover from this episode. It was a hot day, yeah. too, but uh, yeah, uh, that's awesome.
1: You have to come up and come up and do it again. I had a, a great chat with Edo um, the last time I saw him, regrettably, yeah, um, about gliding. In fact, it was at the IMAC comp at Newbridge.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, I was there with him, I think. The um, yeah, well, when I told him that I was going gliding he said because oh, he had a go in a glider somewhere He's telling me back as march or something and he absolutely loved it and uh, and he was so excited when I said I'm going to go out for a flight and you know and I said to him I just want to see whether I like it you know because I could see myself getting into it uh, you know I've got that sort of mindset that you know if I like it and you know fall in love with the idea I'll follow through but um, after I landed and told him that I felt a bit motion sick he was like just encouraging me just go and do it and then uh, he said, "If you do it, I'll do it. We'll get we'll get our glider license." And he said, "Imagine the two of us going and flying together." And I said, "Ah, oh. I said oh, that'd be great." And then the um, the RWF was selling some of their um, gliders, yep. like, the Ecadets or something. And, and I sent him a message and said, "Oh, these gliders are coming up for sale. Andrew, I'll put ten thousand dollars in. Let's go." We'll get one. You and me. We'll go half share. <laughs> and I said, Ido, they're not going to go for 20 grand. I could tell you now. And they went for like 100 and something thousand because they had um, self launch systems, I think, on them.
1: Yeah. I think they sold for about 120,000. That's
0: right.
1: Yeah. yeah. They had uh, motors as well. Yeah. Well, look, mate, you should give it a go. Uh, okay. Wouldn't let uh, the fact that you got motion sick uh, once uh, put you off. But, yeah, come up and, and give it a shot.
0: Well, do you know what I think? The motion sickness wasn't helped by me shooting a video at the same time
1: that's true that would be true I,
0: yeah. I was i had this gopro and i thought i was going to film the experience and i'm glad i did because i've got it on camera the, the other thing was that that launch phase when you take off in a glider and there's the tug right in front of you and it's it's like you could almost reach out and touch it but that experience of seeing ah. a rope and a and a tug in front of you, which feels close, like really close. He says, "This is just surreal. It's unbelievable." You know, it's, it, thinking about it, it's just. And, I, and they, they were, the pilot was great. He, they really gave me money for value. Like he said, "I'll oh, we'll get a bit more height, give you a bit more time up in the air, kind of thing." And then he handed the controls over, and uh, I struggled with the rudder. Oh, the rudder was really sensitive. I had this thing all over the place on the rudder, but um, the ailerons that was all right. In the elevator that wasn't too bad, but yeah. I need some work on the rudder. I think it must have been mode one and on mode two. That's the problem. <laughs> well, uh, that, that's good to hear that you've got into the uh, the full-size thing, but I know how addictive it can be. Every time I know, I've spoken to somebody, I've got, I mean, there's a few people I know in the aeromodelling scene that have gone into gliders, and and they generally give up their model flying because it's just so addictive to go out there and uh, have another fly. But, mm. uh, but it, have you ever done aerobatics in the glider? Because it's aerobatics yes. season at the yes. moment, isn't it, during winter?
1: certainly have done some aerobatics in the glider the the model the glider you flew in is fully aerobatic capable
0: yeah yeah that um and i liked how they had model airplanes in the uh in the clubhouse there too yep that
1: was good they to do see. well i said you should come up but I, yeah you're right about it being addictive and i've neglected their modeling the last uh, last summer a little bit because of gliding but uh We'd love to see you come up to Van Allen and do another flight.
0: Well, the the I may do that. I, I'll come by myself. I took the family last time and it was one of those really hot days. Thermals were well, it was a good day for flying glider, but it was pretty hot in the ground, a bit blustery. And uh the family's like, hurry up. And I'm like saying to my wife, Can you just come take some photos of me? The kids didn't want to get out of the car, it was that hot. And so I'm like, okay, next time I come here, I'm just gonna leave you. Because uh I've got a house not too, too far away, probably about an hour's drive away. So it's not too, too bad up that way. So I'll just duck out by myself next time. Now, you've been flying since, what, 2009 or so, you said, and you've probably owned a fair few uh, models. So I have my signature move, Russell, in every podcast. And I ask every guest this question, and that is, that is what has been your favourite model so far?
1: Well, definitely my favourite model was the the Contra Ascent, that uh, my friends in the Netherlands, the Vandervex, built for me and that I used at the last world championship. So that's definitely been my favorite model. Why is it your favorite? Oh, just uh, everything about it. It's just uh, it's got a contra motor in it. Um, it's just very well built by initially Hu Yang and by my friends, the, uh, the Vandervex, And it's just been a beautiful model. It's been a joy to fly, very accurate, no, um, no bad habits or idiosyncrasies.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. No, they um, do you still have that model?
1: Unfortunately, no. <laughs> uh, like the last time I flew F3A, I had at a competition in Bendigo, so it was about four months ago, yeah. and unfortunately, um, the, the battery disconnected, the solder joint failed in flight, and it was in a bad position and couldn't get it back safely. Yeah,
0: uh, you're gonna hate that. Well, there's been mm. a few. Norm Morris lost a model as well.
1: Yes, he did. But it's always
0: terrible to see when that happens. You know, just some sort of failure, and sometimes you, you just never know. You know, you're not not expecting something like that to go. So, um, anyway, Russell, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Really enjoyed it talking all sorts of things, F three A, and a bit of full size gliding as well, which I which I, I like to see as well. So, all the best. Thanks for joining me, and uh, we'll see you out the flying field, no doubt, at some point in time.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew. Take care, mate.
0: About to leave, already packing, come with me, I'm not really asking, we'll get away to a place where we don't know. Well, another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. Big thank you to Russell Edwards for joining me. Always good to have fellow Aero modelers joining me so it's just not me talking to myself, which you never know. That might happen one day hopefully not to, not not too soon anyway oh, look i know it's tough times for many of us out there in australia who are in lockdown chin up uh listen to some flat out rc podcasts jump onto the flat out rc instagram uh you know as you can imagine one of the things i try to do with flat out rc is i try to create new content to put out into the marketplace so i i rarely would share somebody else's content so when you go to the flat out rc instagram page it's my photos uh, so uh, jump on there it's been terrible because most of those photos were taken at events which as you know in the past year and a half two years uh we haven't have had well at least a year and a half now we haven't had many events to go to so i'm running a bit dry so if you recognize some of the planes well yeah it's just different angles the same thing just a bit of a tip but it's getting harder and harder but anyway jump on there there's plenty of photos to have a look at of different models that might inspire you the facebook page as well the youtube channel just go back and listen to i'll tell you what you've got to go back and have a look at the 2017 china top show video series where martin Bram muller features uh, Ido segev and myself and of course our great host frank liu um i, do, I think i've put about four or five videos up from that little trip like vlogs of um the different days so Go and have a look if you've got nothing to do and of course if you want the movie length film life on high rates uh, from the china top show in 2018 starring Ido segev martin brandmoor and of course jace the ace Doucier. so plenty to keep you occupied in the hobby we can't complain we aero modelers plenty to do even if we can't get out to the field but hopefully we will shortly thanks for joining me once again i'll be back next week we have the president of a major association joining us next week so stay tuned it's gonna be a big one thanks for joining me